Thank you, Aaron. It's good for us to be uh, reminded again. And all of those, it's interesting, whenever we read those psalms that have so many lines from songs that we sing all the time, that I love how as we sing, we step into a tradition that goes back thousands of years where we have joined with other people uh, who, who worshiped God's name together, and we're, we're very thankful for that. So well, we're going to jump into the sermon at this point. Uh, and we're going to be uh, in, a, in a few different places uh, in the Bible, but we're going to start off in, uh, in Deuteronomy, because I love Deuteronomy. And, uh, and in this situation, we're still going on with a series of, of right and just and fair, how to live wisely in a complex world. And um, that is a, this is a complex world. Uh, it is uh, difficult at this point in time to, to understand everything that we're dealing with. All the time as we have uh, instructions from the Lord about how to, to relate to the world in which we live, but um, it, it, nothing is exact in some ways. There's things that are exact, but it's not as clear as we'd like them to be sometimes. And, and as disciples of Jesus, we are called to fundamentally have different approaches to how we uh, interact with the world. And uh, Tim Keller, who I, I really appreciate, says that one of the things that we're called to as disciples of Jesus is to have fundamentally different approaches to multiple things in our world, including, but not limited to, but mostly, we should have different relationships with sex, money, and power. We talked about that last week when we talked about relationships and marriage and how, how our primary and best relationship is not to be found with other people, but to be found in our relationship with Jesus. And, and we've talked about money in the past, and, but today we're going to talk about power. And we're going to talk primarily about how we ought to relate with with rulers and people that are in power over our society. And, and that's a complex thing for us to do, because as soon as you begin to talk about political power and leadership, uh, people get very uptight, uh, either because they don't want to discuss it at all, uh, or because uh, they have very specific views that they want you to agree with, and if you don't agree with their views, then, then you're wrong. And, and I understand how that works. And, and there's some ways where in our current cultural society, we've, we've taken to following politics in the same way that we follow sports. Where, where we just pick a jersey color and we like it, you know, and what they do is right and what the other team does is wrong and we automatically disagree with that. And, and there's layers, especially in a democratic society, that need to be get navigated of how to participate in this. But I think what is important for us as disciples of Jesus is to remember that the Bible has quite a bit to say about how both rulers ought to operate in our society and how we ought to interact with those who possess power and are in positions of leadership. So I'm, I'm not going to be partisan today, you know, um, mostly because I, I'm not sure where my political leanings lie half the time. I like to think that I am perfectly in the center and that anyone who is to the left or the right to me is completely extremist. Um, I think I'm like a lot of people in that way. But I'm not nearly concerned about, about which direction politically we happen to be leaning at any given time as much as I am about the foundation upon which we base how we begin to think and interact with our political leadership and with all sorts of rulers in our society. And what's interesting about the Bible is it, it plants this right off the top, off the top in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 22. This is what the law that, that Moses gives in, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 22. And I think that this is really fascinating because what, what Moses is doing in this 
uh, what has been inspired by God is for him to demonstrate to the people what kind of society they ought to be building. But it also works into that law ways in which you will fail at building the society and, 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 and ways to overcome that. And what's interesting about this is that as he outlines the rules for kings and rulers, it was understood that, that the people of Israel were not to have a king and a ruler. It was the, the, that the Lord was supposed to be their king and then power was supposed to be diffused through a series of, of judges like Moses and like Joshua and Deborah and then it would be diffused through the priests and, and that was the way that things ought to go but there was this expectation that at some point they were going to fail at that and demand a king and this is what Deuteronomy says when you enter the land the Lord has given you and have taken possession of it and settled in it you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. You can see where uh, they've already failed because they're not supposed to be like all the nations around them. They're supposed to be different and unique. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. You must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has said to you, you are not to come back that way again. You must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. You must not accumulate large accumulations of gold and silver. And when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he will write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. And then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. This is interesting for a, a couple of reasons. Um, I, first of all, we go back here and we look at the, the, that the one that our king ought to be, the one who God chooses. That was the expectation for him. But, but the king must also be someone who is not interested primarily in their own wealth. That was the, a demonstration of the power that kings had in the ancient world and still today. And the way that you, that you demonstrated that you were in power was that you accumulated more stuff. And the more stuff and horses and military might that you had, then that was how you demonstrated the world, to the world that you were in power. But the king of Israel was not to do that. He wasn't supposed to have a lot of wives. He wasn't supposed to have a lot of military. He wasn't supposed to have a lot of wealth. He was supposed to primarily get his authority from two sources. And this is what I find fascinating. Because in the ancient world, the authority of the king would come from, I can crush you with my military might. Or, I can buy you off. That's where the power came from. That was, those were the sources of their authority. But in this, the sources of authority for the king were chosen, but were that the king was chosen by God from among the people. So the source of authority comes from not him and his, his power and his authority and his military might, but it comes from the fact that he was chosen by God. And then, it comes from his in-depth knowledge of the instruction and the law of the Lord. He is to carry, he is to write his own copy of the law 
and spend most of his time studying it and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. He's going to be deeply ingrained in them. So his, his authority comes not from being a military master and a wealthy person, but it comes from being a person who's connected to faith and a person who's a legal scholar. It's someone who's ingrained in that way. His authority comes not from force, not from wealth or traditional power structures, but from following the Lord. Now this is interesting because when historically the people of Israel actually get a king, we see how this goes wrong. Um, so and this comes from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7. Um, so the people come to Samuel, who was the judge at the time, and they say, give us a king. We want to be like everybody else. Give us a king. We want to have one of those. And Samuel's like, yeah, not a good idea. When they said give us a king, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. The ruler of the people was always supposed to be the Lord. This is demonstrated throughout the book of Judges, throughout the book of Joshua, throughout the entire history. That the ruler of the people of Israel was always supposed to be God in their connection with him. They failed at that, and that's why this king is rising up. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king, and he said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights, and you will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. Interesting, wasn't he just told to not accumulate horses? But Samuel was saying, like, if you have a king, this is what a king's going to do. They will run in front of his chariots, chariots, he will assign, and some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvests, and still others to make weapons of war and equipments for his chariots. You will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. You will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He was just instructed not to accumulate wealth for himself. But Samuel warns his people. He's like, look, if you have a king, he's not going to be able to help himself. He's, going, he's not going to be able to stop from just accumulating more wealth. That's the nature of what human rulers do. He continues, you will take the tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants, servants, and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the, for relief from the king you have chosen. But on that day, the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want the king over us. Then we shall be like all the other nations, with a king to go before us, to go out before us and to fight our battles. How sad that is when we know the story, because we know that they were never intended to be like all the other nations. And as they are right now, they have the Lord to go before them, and the Lord fights their battles, and that's what they've been taught for centuries of God working in them and among their people. But what do they want at, at, when, at their moment of weakness, when, when they feel small and insignificant, when they feel insufficient? They do not trust the Lord. They say, we want a king to go before us. Give us someone who looks powerful, who looks rich, who looks strong, and, get, and let them rule over us, because we don't trust God to do it on our own. And when Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord answered, give, listen to them, and give them the king. There's two things I want us to notice out of this. 
First thing I want us to notice is what I often refer to when you've heard me talk about a lot is the passive wrath of God. That the wrath of God is being visited on all of us when we don't do what he says. And, and sometimes that wrath is active. We see that in Sodom and Gomorrah where, where God makes fire and brimstone rain down on his people. We see uh, that in the flood where God floods the entire earth to destroy it. But the vast majority of the time, the wrath of God is not active in that way. The wrath of God is passive, where God, where God visits his wrath upon us by saying, okay, that's what you want, you can have it. Go ahead, see how that works out for you. And God is doing that at this time. You want a king so badly? This is what a king's going to be like. Okay, sure, you can have that. That's the passive wrath of God. We think that sometimes because God allows us to have what we want, that, that, that he's blessing us or that, or that he's operating for us or that he's not upset with us. But the reality is often the way that God works in our lives is to say, okay, you can have that on your own. See how that goes. Second thing I want us to notice is the expectation and desire for a ruler to look after them was a symptom of their lack of faith. If they hadn't been a faithful people, they wouldn't have expected a king to rule over them. They wouldn't have needed this, this big, powerful, rich person to go before them and to fight their battles. If they hadn't been people of faith, they would have trusted the Lord to do that. But that broke down. And, and I think that this is important thing for, an important thing for us to recognize. Because if we find ourselves getting upset or concerned that we do not have a ruler like us, that we do not have a ruler that agrees with us, that we do not have a ruler that is operating in ways that we appreciate, and we get angry and upset and possibly violent about that, then maybe that is not betraying our faithfulness in God. Maybe that is betraying a lack of faith in God. Maybe if we find ourselves getting bitter and angry about the political machinations of our Lord, maybe that, that is not because we're so concerned about how far our nation has drifted from what God has called us to. Maybe that's because we don't trust that God is actually sovereign over everything that is happening. It's a concern that we ought to have. And it's interesting when Jesus finally shows up, because when Jesus shows up at times, we've, we've seen through the history of the people of Israel how their kings failed consistently, and then and then the then other rulers from other nations rolled over them with military power and crushed the people, and and and, and foreign powers held power over the people of Israel, and, and into that walks Jesus, because Jesus arrives at a time. When, when political power is held by Rome, the Roman Empire is in charge of the vast majority of the known world at the time. And the way that they, uh, exude, the way that they exercise their power is to violently crush any opposition to them. So within Israel, when Jesus arrives on the scene, Rome is in charge, and then that power is diffused through, the, through a series of governors, and then, and then religious leaders that, that work on behalf of the Roman Empire. That's the, the world in which he comes. And when Jesus arrives on that world and begins to preach, what is the very first thing he says? His first and primary message is from that time on, and this is from Matthew 4, Jesus began to preach, repent the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. It's heaven in Matthew, it's kingdom of God uh, in, in Luke. This is fascinating. Because Jesus' message is that all of these rulers that you see over top of you, 
They don't really have nearly as much power as you think they did. And in fact, the kingdom of God, the place where God rules, has come near you in a way that you didn't expect. It started to, it's here and it's almost here. And and despite the influence of these political and religious rulers and the armies that they hold, the real power is being visited among you. This is starting to come to roost in and among you. Being realized in your midst is a new kingdom and a new power that renders all of those rulers irrelevant. Jesus says this and demonstrates it in, uh, in um, Matthew chapter 22. When, uh, when the Pharisees come to ask him a question about how they ought to relate to their political overlords. And then, so the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him with their words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians teacher they say you know we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are tell us then what is your opinion is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not and this is interesting because the people of Israel were, were, were required to pay taxes to Caesar and they were required to do so with coins that had the image of Caesar on them Having the image of someone on a coin was considered by the people of Israel idolatry. It, the, the, the Roman emperor and Caesar was a false god. That was someone who was completely contrary to the way that they lived their lives. And what they're trying to sucker him into is, okay, how much and how far are you willing to go with this? Are you going to pick a fight with the Roman Empire, Jesus? Are you, going to, are you going to attack them and be crushed by them? And Jesus, again, as we saw last week when he's backed into these corners, somehow manages to, manages to do some weird intellectual judo throw and turn everything on its head. And Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, you actors, is the way that the word is literally translated, why are you trying to sh- trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him to Denarius, and he asked them, whose image is on this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Now this is very interesting because of who asked him the question and the way that he answered it. The people who asked him the question were the Pharisees. These were the religious leaders, the people who had the entire instruction of God uh, memorized. They knew all of the words in it in their head, and they knew how to argue that. So when Jesus says image, their mind automatically goes back to the first time that image is used in the Bible, which is in Genesis 1, where God creates humanity in his own image, where he says, let us create man in our image, is what the Elohim does at the beginning. So this word image is very important to them. So he says image, and whose image is on this? And that's Caesar's, and this coin belongs to Caesar. It says his image, give it back to him. It doesn't really matter, it's relevant. But whose image are you made in? Whose image is ingrained on you? And, and if we recognize that, that we were create, all of us created in God's image, then all of a sudden what Jesus is talking about is give to God what is God's. You have God's image ingrained on you. You have God's image ingrained on your heart. You are his image affair. So therefore, everything that is you belongs to God. Give your heart your mind, your soul, everything that you have back to God. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the first and primary command. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they let him go away. And this is fascinating. 
Because what Jesus is saying is that while we remain part of the kingdoms of this world and we adhere to and follow the rules of the kingdoms of this world, we recognize as his followers that our primary citizenship uh, is, is not to Canada or to the United States or any other nation state that currently exists in the world, but that our primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God. And that's where our hearts and our bodies and all of those things belong because they are given to the king of kings. So we are good citizens of Canada. We pay taxes because that's a good thing to do. As a church, we follow Canada Revenue Association regulations because we want to abide by the rules of the society in which we live. We, are, we vote and we participate in our democracy because that makes us good citizens of our country. But as disciples of Jesus, we recognize that this, is, this, this country is not our home. That this is not the kingdom of heaven. And that, and that the nation-state of Canada is temporary, while the kingdom of God is eternal. And that when the full realization of that kingdom comes, all nation-states, as we understand them, will pass away. They are secondary to us. So we're not afraid when a new ruler comes in or, or, or a party that we did not vote for gets elected. We're not afraid. We're not angry. We're not, we're not worried. Because we recognize that, okay, this is the way that things are for now, but, but this world wasn't home to begin with. God is in, in charge of this thing, and we will trust him despite what is happening around us. Paul talks about this in Rome, and I know we go through a lot of different passages, but I think it's important to get to the heart of this complex issue. Because I think one of the issues, I talk about this book a lot, but there's a book by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons called You Lost Me. And one of the reasons uh, why people are rejecting Christian faith in North America is because they are looking at us and people like us and saying you're overly politically involved, specifically with one political wing. So somehow the way that we relate to rulers is preventing us from communicating the good news of who Jesus is to the rest of this world. And, and that's a problem. But I'm not saying that you should choose one party or the other. I really don't care. But we need to understand as disciples of Jesus that, that our kingdom is not of this world. And that our rulers and the people that we vote for are irrelevant to the face of Almighty God. This is what Paul said. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. And the authorities that exist have been established by God. And consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but only for those who do wrong. Do you want to be freed from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for the rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And therefore, it is necessary to submit to authorities not only because of the possible punishment, but as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And this is a very This is a very interesting point, because it says all leadership comes from God. Now, this puts us in an awkward position, because the reality is, 
uh, there's lots of times when our governments act in a way that we think is reprehensible or wrong. There's lots of times when we find ourselves rebelling against the state, where we ought to be protesting against them, where we say, like, wait a minute, your views are not our views, and in fact, your views are contrary to the will of God and what God has called us to. And there's some concern that what, what, what Paul is calling us to is a capitulation, saying that like whatever the people that are in charge are the ones that God has put in charge, and therefore we need to obey them uh, unthinkingly because God has placed them in charge. I don't think that that's what the passage is saying. Because I think that the reality is, is Paul knows quite well that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so he understands as one who was thrown into prison multiple times, as one who was beaten multiple times, who caused riots, and constantly was, 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 uh, was, was being accused of rebelling against the state, that his primary allegiance was to God and his kingdom. So he wasn't really that concerned about what Caesar and the leaders of Rome could do to them. Paul was quite willing to put himself in a position that would get, himself in, that would get him in trouble with the existing leadership of the time. But he understood what Jesus said, that, that do not, what Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Paul was not concerned about, about rebelling against the state. He was concerned about rebelling against God. And he's not afraid. In this fallen world, we deal with insanity. And we follow one who was crucified because the state wanted him crucified. The Lord used that for his own good. But we recognize first the authority of the Lord and the second the authority of the state. And when, we, when those are in conflict, we follow the Lord. And we trust that even if we face consequences from the state, they pale in the face of the glory that we will see. We need not fear those who can kill the body, but those who can kill both body and soul and hell. We see multiple examples of this in the Bible. In the book of Exodus, when Pharaoh tells Hebrew midwives to, to kill young Hebrew boys as soon as they're born, what do they do? They say, no, we're not going to do that. And then they lie to Pharaoh. They say, well, actually, uh, the, the Hebrew mothers all give birth before we can arrive. They recognize that, and God blesses them for that, because they recognize that the God that we serve is more powerful even than Pharaoh. And there are examples of how this works in our society, one of my favorite stories is uh, of the people of Le Chambon in France and their actions during World War II, which is a fascinating story. There's a village in, in, in the mountains of France where um, uh, during World War II, um, Jewish refugees from the rest of France started to escape there. And these Christians, the Huguenots, uh, the Protestants who lived there, began to hide them. They hid, hid them in the mountains, they hid them in their own homes, they hid them everywhere. And, and the German state and the, and the, and the, the, the SS and, and arrived at the time and they, and they wanted to, to deal with this problem. And, and there's a, in this, I'm reading from Malcolm Gladwell's David and Goliath, but it's a. Uh, I'll just read this out and how they dealt with this issue. In the summer of 1942, George Laramond, the Vichy minister in charge of youth affairs, paid a state visit to Le Chambon. Caetan wanted him to set up youth camps around France patterned after the Hitler youth camps in Germany. Laramond swept up the mountain with his entourage resplendent in his marine blue uniform. His agenda called for a banquet, then a march to the town stadium for a meeting with local youth, then a formal reception. But the banquet did not go well. 
The food was barely uh, adequate. Trockman, the mayor of the town, his daughter accidentally spilled soup down the back of Valeraman's uniform. But during the parade, no one came. The streets were deserted. And at the stadium, nothing was arranged. The children milled around, jostling and gawking. And at the reception, a townsperson got up and read from the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 13, verse 8, what we just read. Oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves the na- his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Then a group of students walked up to Laraman and in front of the entire town presented him with a letter. It had been drafted with Trachmay's help earlier that summer. The Vichy police had rounded 12,000 Jews up in Paris at the request of the Nazis. Those arrested were held in horrendous conditions at the Velodrome Kiver, south of Paris, before being sent to the concentration camp at Auschwitz. Le Chambon, the children made it clear, wanted no part of any of this. Mr. Minister, the letter began, we have learned of the frightening scenes which took place three weeks ago in Paris where the French police, on orders of the occupying power, arrested in their homes all of the Jewish families in Paris to hold them in the Velle d'Hiver. The fathers were torn from their families and sent to Germany, the children torn from their mothers who underwent the same fate as their husbands. We are afraid that the measures of deportation of the Jews will soon be applied in the southern zone. And we feel obliged to tell you that there are among us a certain number of Jews, but we make no distinction between Jews and non-Jews. It is contrary to gospel teaching. And if our comrades, whose only fault it is to be born of another religion, receive the orders to let themselves be deported or even examined, they would disobey the order received, and we would try to hide them as best we could. We have Jews. You're not getting them. It's fascinating that they chose this moment to say, you have the power to do with us whatever you will. You have it within your power to roll over and destroy this village. But you will do that before we will obey an order that is contrary to the law of God. That is well within your power to do. But you do not have the power of life and death over us. You can kill our bodies, you can burn our homes, you can destroy our village, but our souls belong to God Almighty, and it's in His kingdom where we will live now and for eternity. So we have Jews. You are not getting them. It's a fascinating place for us to be as we relate to our rulers. Because I do think that there is a call on people of God to be involved politically, to care about what is happening in our country, to ensure as best they can that justice and peace are being done. But our hope, our ultimate hope, is not found in political parties or ideologies or whoever happens to get elected or power in politics. Our hope is found in nothing less than Jesus and his life and righteousness. And that is why our message is consistently going to be that the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and get your lives right in light of that. And if that kingdom of heaven where our citizenship lies puts us into conflict with our ruling authorities, then that's okay. We will accept that. But we will not be afraid. We will not be angry. And we will not lash out. Because ultimately we know how this story ends. Because ultimately, the final ruler in this story is God. When God descends to live amongst his people and reign in joy and hope and peace and justice now and for eternity. Let's pray. God, it is easy to get distracted by the messages of this world that say our only hope is in who happens to get elected this election. Our only hope is found in accumulating more power, more horses, more more, more, more. But that is not where our hope is found. Our hope is found in you. And our citizenship is in your kingdom. 
And we will not cease to do right. And in doing right, we will be good citizens of Canada because we are blessed to be placed here in this good country. But we recognize that this country is not the kingdom of God. This country is not our ultimate home, and that our ultimate home is with you, and that your kingdom will come here to reign, that when heaven crashes into earth, we will be citizens there. So we ask that you would remind us of that. Help us to not be dismayed. Help us to not live in fear. Help us to live bravely and boldly and joyfully, because we know that this is your world, and you are in charge. And we ask this in the name of